How are we meant to think about this church that God is building? I want to answer that because the less we identify the church as the building we go to, and the more we identify the church as the people that God is building together, the better it is. And I'm going to tell you this, I'm convinced of it. The better it will be for you personally, wherever you are in faith, the less you think about church as the place you go to, the building, and the more you think of it about this community of people that God has mixed up together with all of our differences and all of our diversity and all of our places and faith and every other thing about us that differentiates us, the more you think of it in that way, the better for you personally. And then this is my responsibility as the pastor of the church, and I love this responsibility. Uh, the more we have a clear picture of who God wants us to be, the better we will be all together at being the Renaissance church that God wants to build. And our strategy for finding our way is going to be to look at the New Testament to see the images that are used there to help picture the church. Those dynamic metaphors that are offered in Scripture to help teach us how to think about who God is and then to think about who we are in relationship to those pictures so that our self-understanding is faithful and guides us in everything we do. Now that song that Julie just sang had in the middle of it an image for who God is for us. And I hope, and I genuinely hope this, that that image will be an encouragement to you wherever you are in your life, personally, and will shape our self-understanding as we begin this journey of trying to let the Bible teach us who we are. Uh, it's an image uh, that comes not only in Jesus' teaching, but from the very beginning of the Bible to the end, and perhaps it represents a complex of understanding who God is and who we are as a consequence that may be the most commonly used in all of the Bible. Uh, it appears on the lips of poets and prophets. It appears most movingly, I would say, on uh, the lips of Jesus, our Lord. And so I want to begin uh, by showing you one place where Jesus sets before his followers a picture of who God is and then who they are. And I want to allow this to be our touch point for this morning. In John chapter 10, in verse 11, Jesus is with uh, the apostles and the disciples that he's been building together. And here's what he says. Look at it. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, Jesus said this to his disciples in order to give them a pair of images to internalize, a picture which would be faithful of who they are in relationship to him, a metaphor that is dynamic, which he gives to them so that their understanding, their self-understanding will be shaped appropriately, so that their goals will be guided accordingly, so their efforts together will be directed by what he says about who he is and who they are. He wants this community that he's gathering and equipping, building into the church already without a building. He wants them to have this brief statement, a vivid picture of who God has decided to be for them and then who they are right beside it so that they can know who he is and who they are. And there it is, very simply, the good shepherd and the sheep. And Jesus taught his first followers, and by extension, he wants to teach us that the church is the flock of God and Jesus is the good shepherd who leads it. This morning, what I want us to see all together is the promise, the help, the challenge, the power, 
the sustenance that is in that image for us. That if we could grasp an understanding of ourselves as a flock and of Jesus as the shepherd and let that sink deep into our hearts, we would find ourselves guided faithfully in a way that would be good for us individually, that would be good for all of our, our sense of how to relate to God and that would therefore be good for the world around us because that's what the images do. They teach us how to be related to each other and to God and the world. Before we dig deep into Jesus' words in John 10, however, we, we must understand the background for these two images. And the only way to do that really is to try to put ourselves in the place of those first listeners because for them, sheep and shepherd was a much more vivid metaphor than it will be for most of us. Maybe some of us have had some hands-on experience with sheep, but very few of us will. Let's go back in order to go forward. Look at this line here and tell me if you know it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Is that familiar to many of you? I would guess a lot of you know what comes next. It's a line that comes from one of the most popular psalms in all of the Bible. I have been as a chaplain at the bedside of someone who's ill, or there at the graveside with a mourning family, or, or in the evening sitting with a group of high school students who are racked and troubled by how hard the world is, I've sat in those groups and heard these words read and there was some part of my heart that knew deeper than I could even put into words that here's the truth, that the Lord is my shepherd. Those words were written by David, not Macaron. Um, if you don't know, if you're visiting the fellow here who sings, that's Dave Macaron. The David who wrote those words, like Dave Macaron, was a poet and was a, a musician too. He was. He was also a king, the king of Israel. And all of these elements of his personality, he poured into that poetry to say who God was. He was something else before he was any of those. Does anyone else know how his career began? He was a shepherd which means at night he knew what it was like to take the sheep that he cared for and lead them to safety. He, he knew what it was like when it was dark out to gather those sheep together and hear the howling wolves in the distance and to arm himself to protect those vulnerable sheep from their predators. He knew what it was like in the morning to get up and guide them to the place where they could have the food they needed and the water that they required to thrive. He knew what it was like when one of them was lost to go chasing after it to recover it because he knew that when sheep became separated from the flock that they were lost and doomed. And then, please listen now, then when David the poet and the musician and the king searched in his imagination for a way to show others who God was, he thought of what he did as a shepherd and then he thought God's like that. And that's why he wrote those lines because David knew that God searches for us when we're lost. That God thinks of us when we're far away from him and it hurts his heart so he goes after us. That God goes great to great lengths to guide us and show us the ways to true life, to have what we need to survive. That when one of us is separated, God goes after us and his heart is for us. When there are threats, that God is there. And so David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. Here are the roots of the image that will help us, if we'll listen to Jesus, understand who God is for us. Now, this image is only one side of a pair, right? If God is my shepherd, what does it make me? It makes me his... Right, his sheep. Here's another line from the Psalms. How was that? That was my imitation of a, of a large group of people tentatively saying sheep. 
Psalm 103, know that the Lord is God. Don't, don't have any question about it. The Lord, the one we're talking about is God. He's omnipotent. He's in charge of everything that has ever been. Don't worry about anything when you keep in mind that God has it all. That's who God is. The, know this, the Lord is God. We, listen, it is he that made us and we are his. We belong to him. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Here's the other side of the image. If God is our shepherd, we are his sheep. Now, everyone in that uh, ancient time who heard this poetry would know that to be compared to a sheep, well, that means a few things that you might not readily want to own because sheep are vulnerable. They can't protect themselves. Uh, they are helpless without a shepherd and they are helpless because, please prepare yourself, sheep are profoundly dumb. Uh, Sorry, but look at this. Here, look at this. <laughs> I mean, there's no image of an animal that makes it seem more helpless and dumb than that. Without the guidance of the shepherd, the sheep will get its head stuck in all kinds of buckets, which will prevent it from seeing and knowing where to go and eating and living. And this is one of the other sides of this metaphor for God being the shepherd and we being his flock, it's meant to teach us how desperately we need him. And the Old Testament, the poetry and the prophecies of God's people are filled with rich imagery that not only depict the goodness of God as the shepherd, but the helplessness of his people as sheep. And not only helplessness, but their waywardness too. Now, many people have, a, I think, a caricature of the Old Testament, which tells them that it's the book that shows off how good one people are compared to all the other people. And that's God's people. And that's why I don't like it. That's not at all what the Old Testament does. It doesn't hide the fact that God's people turned away from him over and over again. They went their own way far from him. When they did, it was really bad for them and the world around them. And it wasn't just that they were foolish and wayward, they were wicked. Some of the stories for which God's own people are responsible, the behaviors toward women and the vulnerable, uh, the way that the poor are taken advantage of and the rich uh, exploit their power at the expense of others are disgusting. And, and this metaphor of shepherd and sheep is also drawn in to that fact, which the Bible doesn't hide. Uh, this is a line from one of the prophets who describes it very succinctly in Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. Uh, this, this line in Isaiah was meant to say in a, in a vivid and poetic way, why is the world so messed up now? Even though God's people know him, why are they so miserable? And that was a poetic way of saying it then. I think it's not a bad bit of poetry for our own day. Uh, every time you see an act of wickedness and cruelty, of selfishness, uh, of evil, you can say there's a sheep that has gone astray. And, and if we're mature and honest and we reflect not only on the way others are getting it wrong, but the way that we ourselves have once again got our heads stuck in some metaphorical bucket, the answer would be that we also are like sheep who have gone astray. Do you see it? Now this raises a very uh, poignant question for the prophets of the Old Testament. And it's a question that, that really pertains to what should the shepherd do? 
Okay? If you imagine God as the shepherd and his people as the sheep who are going far away, the question that comes over and over, and in some moments, especially poignantly, is what should God do given this state of affairs? Uh, maybe you've wondered that when you look at the world and you see the effects of the wandering sheep. Have you ever wondered that? What, what would, if I were God, what would I do? Have you ever thought that? Yeah. There are two answers that come in the prophets. One of them is very bleak. And one of them is very bright. Uh, the bleak answer, uh, one place it emerges is in the book of Zechariah. Uh, I'm guessing that very few of us have read the book of Zechariah in the last few days. Is that right? Yeah. Zechariah was a prophet who looked at the wandering sheep and decided to present his own sense of what God felt through a sort of lived parable. Uh, he, he did this dramatic thing to try to express God's um, feelings. Stay with me here. This is remarkable. Zechariah went to the sheep merchants and he said, let me take responsibility for the sheep. He carved for himself two staves. One he named favor and the other he named unity because with these he wanted to depict his aim with the sheep. Metaphorically, he was saying, I'm gonna show God's people what he wants from their leaders and what he wants for them as his people. He gathered the sheep together and for one month, Zechariah tried to lead these sheep toward unity and toward favor. And as the month progressed, it got worse and worse for him. It got so miserable because the sheep were devouring and biting each other. They hated him with all of their heart. He took them back to the sheep merchants and there he returned them to the people from whom he had uh, taken responsibility. He grabbed his staff favor and he broke it over his knee to say symbolically they've They've fallen out of my favor. There's no hope for them. Here, he was trying to express what it must feel like to be God. And then he says to the sheep merchants, take them back. They're good for only one thing, for the slaughter. And that is one attitude that Zechariah believed must be in God when he looks at how miserably disobedient the people have become. Zechariah says to the sheep merchants, pay me for what I did or not. I don't care, whatever you decide. The sheep merchants gather together a bag of coins. They hand it to him. It's an amount that is meant to be a sort of tongue-in-cheek amount. It's 30 silver coins, which at the time was the value for one slave who was accidentally killed. Zechariah goes off and God says, throw the coins in the treasury. Some of you know where this is going. It's bleak. That's one possibility. Maybe God should give up on the sheep. There's another possibility. The possibility which is expressed uh, beside that, which is not to turn them over and give up on them, but to finally come in person to rescue them. Because if you study the God of the Old Testament, you will see on the one hand that he hates wickedness and evilness. He hates when people are cruel and awful. When sheep go away from him, it breaks his heart. But on the other hand, there's something that's stronger and deeper and more profound uh, than God's revulsion at evil. And it is God's love and undying love for the people that he wants to pursue no matter what. And this is the other hope that's expressed in the Old Testament. It is that God will not give up on his people, but rather he himself will come and be the shepherd of his people in person. Listen to how it's put in Ezekiel. I can't improve on this. Thus says the Lord God, I made myself, uh, excuse me, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek 
out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. This is God saying what he will do one day. Would you listen now with the ears of a sheep? And this is what God says he will do. There I will make them lie down in good grazing land. I will let them feed on rich pastures on the mountains. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. Now, listen, you're almost in the position to hear Jesus' words as those first disciples would have heard them. The people who heard this hope expressed that maybe God would do this, surely they thought there's no way God could be that gracious because they knew how far they had strayed. What seemed right to them was Zechariah's image of a God who would at one point finally give up and, and accept 30 coins but what their hearts longed for was that perhaps this could in fact not be too good to hope for, but true. And now with that in your heart and mind, come back with me to Jesus' teaching. The place where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Do you hear what he's saying now? I am the one who fulfills the long expressed hope from Ezekiel that one day God himself would come and do for you what you need so that you are rescued and delivered and healed and made whole so that you can take whatever bucket is stuck on your head off and begin to live the life that I want for you individually and as the flock. Here, if we would come back to John 10, what I want to take you through very, very clearly uh, are the ways that Jesus' teaching there offers concrete pictures of what the church is going to be if it's going to see itself right. And here, I don't want us to think abstractly. I don't want us to think about someone else. I want us to think about us here altogether. And I'm asking you to do that as the church that I'm a part of with you, that we should put our minds together to trying to understand how we should think of ourselves according to Jesus' teachings, according to the images that the New Testament gives us. If you're a visitor, if you're just checking this place out, if you're just passing through and gonna go back to your own church, would you please try to listen so that you can hear the Bible teach you how you should think of yourself wherever you are, uh, so that you know how to conceive of your, yourself as a, a, a person who is one of the sheep in the flock wherever you are so that God can guide you and help you grow because what the world needs is churches that understand themselves in the right way. So let's go back to John chapter 10 and one at a time look at some of the things there that Jesus teaches so that we can understand what the good shepherd does. Let's start with verse two in chapter 10. Uh, here Jesus teaches like this. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Here Jesus is referring to the practice that anyone in that agricultural setting would know after spending a night together in the safety of the corral when the gate is open, 
in the morning so that the sheep can go out and feed. They will wait for the voice that they know before feeling safe and secure. Once the good shepherd calls to the sheep, they will go through the gate. Once he calls them by name, he knows them and they have been with him long enough to know his voice. And when he calls them, they hear and they trust him. Then they go out where he leads because, and this is the first thing that the good shepherd does, the good shepherd guides his sheep. And, and now, if we would allow that image to shape our relationship with Jesus, it teaches us that Jesus guides us. And he guides us personally because he knows our names. He guides us in a way that gives us security and that should make us feel safe because he knows. And if we are going to be the church, which is a flock of this good shepherd, then we will have to practice learning to recognize Jesus' voice. And there I'm being very practical. If we want to know how to be the church that God wants us to be, this can be a first thing. To be guided by the good shepherd requires that we sheep learn to recognize his voice and then follow where he guides. If the good shepherd guides, good sheep will follow. And that's the first very concrete lesson for us. If we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, the first thing is for us to follow the good shepherd. And who is that? It's Jesus. It's not me. I'll do the best I can to be a shepherd, but I'm always going to be a shepherd under that shepherd. Agreed? And anyone in here who takes on a role of shepherding will be beneath not me, but that good shepherd. That's the first thing. Uh, let's, let's look at uh, a second thing. If we go on to verse 12, uh, Jesus differentiates himself from others who want to lead a flock, from those who are not the good shepherd, but the hired hands. Here's what he says in verse 12. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. Um, here, Jesus knows that most of those folks will understand that when someone's not really the owner of the sheep and their heart is not deeply invested, when a threat comes against the flock, which always will happen in that agricultural setting, uh, the hired hand runs. He goes on to differentiate himself. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because the hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Here, Jesus wants to direct their attention to the difference between him and every other shepherd, which is that when the threat comes, Jesus, the good shepherd, does not flee. When there's a danger, uh, when there is something which is dangerous and, and frightening, and difficult, and hard, and, and threatens to unnerve and take apart the flock, Jesus will always, always stay put because he is the good shepherd. And that's the second thing about the good shepherd. The good shepherd protects. Uh, Jesus wants us to understand that every flock, every church will face threats from wolves. Is there someone in here who, who, if we were in a different style of church, would stand up and shout amen right now because of experience? Hasn't the church you've been involved with been threatened by some kind of wolf? Hasn't the church nationally in the news, isn't it right now being threatened by the ugliest and worst kinds of wolves imaginable? Yes? Uh, 
This church in which we are gathered this morning has had its share of wolves in the past, and I will tell you, it will have its share of wolves again always because we are a flock uh, that is always going to be vulnerable to attack. And that's true. And that would be scary if not for this truth that the good shepherd protects, and he does. And if we are going to be the church that understands ourselves as the flock of this good shepherd, then what it means is that when we face threats, we should look first to Jesus for protection. When we face threats that are emotional in nature or intellectual in nature, threatening ideas, when we face threats that are personal, when we face threats, and these are going to be the biggest wolves for us that are spiritual, we do not need to be afraid so long as we are looking to the one who protects no matter what, and that is Jesus. And we should expect and look for and pray for and plead for his protection because if we're going to be good sheep of this shepherd, then we seek safety and security first in Jesus and nowhere else. And that's the second bit of guidance. Would you please be willing to take heart from that guidance? I'm pleading with you right now. And I am because I care for you as one who with you is a sheep who will also be threatened by wolves. Can we agree together to look to Jesus for protection and encourage one another when things get challenging to look to that same spot? Yes? Good, thank you. Um, I'm gonna highlight two more. There are far more than just four bits of guidance in John 10 for how to think of ourselves as, as the church, but there's only 35 minutes for this message. And if I go long, I get upbraided by Dave Macaron. <laughs> Here's a third bit of teaching. It's in verse 16. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, Oh, this Jesus told them for a very specific reason. Sheep, when they get gathered together, get comfortable with their own, and then they're liable to take all kinds of pleasure and joy in their little group so that they shut out other sheep who also need to be cared for. And Jesus knew already with these disciples who were gathering together with him that the moment they began to identify themselves with him as their shepherd, they would also face the temptation of feeling proud of themselves and superior to others who weren't included. And they would try to build up their self-image by feeling good about themselves, by drawing lines around us and them. And they would try to keep others out. And my friends, this will constantly be a temptation for every single church except for those who are no longer growing. And I have to tell you that Renaissance Church is a church which is still growing. Do you know that? I met many people uh, uh, last Sunday who told me it was their very first time. And here Jesus teaches us that a third activity of the good shepherd who is the shepherd of our flock is that the good shepherd invites. And he does that even with sheep who he knows already that the ones who are already a part of this flock might be a little bit skittish around. But he wants us to understand that it's up to him as the good shepherd to determine who's in and not. That it's not our job, but his job to say, welcome. And if we're going to be the sheep of this good shepherd, then we must ourselves be ready to allow him to invite. And that means that we must choose to welcome every single sheep that comes along. I don't need to dwell on this anymore, do I? I just want us to be a flock that has a gate that is tended 
to by Jesus and not us. Agreed? Agreed. All right, one last uh, uh, activity here to highlight in John chapter 10. This comes in verse 9. And this is a very concise and poetic and an extremely important and powerful statement of Jesus, the good shepherd. In verse 9, he says, I am the gate. Now here he's mixing the metaphor, but he's allowed to do that because he's Jesus. I am the gate, he says. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. What Jesus, the good shepherd, wants is for sheep to come in and go out so they can have what they need. That's what the pasture is. He wants them to live. But here he's teaching the disciples one last thing that the good shepherd does, and it is this, the good shepherd saves. And he doesn't want there to be any ambivalence or any lack of clarity about the role of Jesus with respect to every single sheep, the ones who are here and the ones who are wayward. And what he wants us to understand, all of us, is that Jesus saves that's what the good shepherd does. He saves. There's no way to save yourself. You can't try hard enough. You can't have the right ideas enough. You can't modify your behavior enough. You can't be religious enough. You can't worship long enough or hard enough or in the right enough way. You can't follow the right rituals enough. None of that will save you. There's only one thing that will save a person, and it is the grace and love and mercy of the good shepherd. The only way for anyone to be saved is to say, I am a sheep who has wandered so far away that my sin and my disobedience and my misery has utterly disqualified me from this flock. And then, and then to be open to the only hope you have, which is the gate through which you have salvation, which is Jesus, the good shepherd who has come in person. Now let's look at all four of these who has come in person to build the flock, his flock, which is going to be the church when it allows him to guide it into the truth, which allows him to guide it into what's next for us, which allows him to guide it into what's true and what's not true, which allows him to guide it into its self-understanding, its understanding of how we're to be related to one another as a flock and how we're related to the world. We are the church which allows this Jesus, the good shepherd, to protect us. And then we are the church that he wants us to be when we allow him to be the one who invites others in and stop trying to take that responsibility for ourselves. And when we acknowledge with full hearts and clear eyes that Jesus saves. And then we become the individuals who are able to proclaim, now please listen to this, don't lose me here that Jesus did not only fulfill the bright hope that was expressed in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, that God would one day come and be the one who is the good shepherd, but in a striking and a profound and a prophetic way, he actually also fulfilled the bleak hope that was expressed in Zechariah, but he did it in a way that no one would have guessed. Uh, many times in John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd in virtue of the thing which he does for the sheep. Uh, did you pick up on it when I read verse 11? Look at verse 11 again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. Uh, that means to put one's life at the disposal of another, which Jesus did in his life, but he also did it all the way up to his death. And shortly after this teaching, this was in the third year of Jesus' teaching, one of his sheep, one of the men who heard him teach this, Judas, who was a, 
a sheep with Jesus the good shepherd, he went off to the religious leaders in Israel, the high priests. And by the way, does anybody know one of the images that they also were known by, the high priests? The shepherds. He went off to the wicked shepherds, Judas, and he made a deal to turn over Jesus to slaughter. And in Zechariah's case, it was a deal to turn the sheep over to slaughter by one shepherd. But here, it is the sheep turning the shepherd over for slaughter, Jesus. And some of you know what Judas was given for doing that, don't you? A bag of silver coins, 30. The number that represents the value in that day for a slave that was killed. Now, this is the question for us. What will we do with the good shepherd? And that is it. And I want to be as clear as I can. What we should do is to allow him to guide us and to protect us and to invite us and to save us. If we will not do that, we are always free to trade Jesus in for something which we think is more valuable, for a bag of coins. But what happened with that bag of coins after Judas decided to throw it into the temple treasury just as Zechariah did? is he was prevented from doing so, and he went and he bought a field with it. And do you know what happened to him in that field? He died there. And, and let me leave you with this. The church which trades Jesus in for anything else will always have the same future ahead of it, and that is death. So let's pray that God will preserve us from that as the good shepherd. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for the chance to gather together and learn from the Bible how we should think about who we are in light of who you have been. We thank you that in Jesus you decided to be the good shepherd fulfilling that uh, ancient hope from Ezekiel that one day you yourself would come. And we thank you that in Jesus you've come to be our good shepherd. We thank you that we're rescued from all the threats and dangers that we could never save ourselves from by your grace and your presence with us. I ask that you'd help build us into the church that you want us to be, that you would build us into the flock that is your people, and that in every way we would grow to be good sheep with you as our shepherd. God, lastly, I thank you that in Jesus you decided to give yourself to lay your life down fully so that we ourselves could be saved and rescued as you took the place of the wayward sheep and gave us the place of the good shepherd, uh, the, the, the member of the body of the good shepherd's flock. Um, now we ask very simply that you'd uh, build deep into our hearts this imagery of who you are and who we are as a consequence. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.